Hello, and welcome to World of Warbirds. I'm Brian Pierce. Usually, a warbird's allegiance is pretty simple. They are designed and built by a country and operated by that country. Some are perhaps exported to or built by an ally under license. A rare few may be captured by an opponent and painted up in their colors for flight testing and evaluation, and a very, very rare number might actually be used against their former side in combat in some sort of ruse de guerre or war trick. But due to the ways that the winds of war blew for this warbird, it ended up flying for both sides. And there were even instances that one machine would fly for the Allies, then for the Axis, and then for the Allies again. And you've probably never even heard of it. So today, let's discover and take a close look at one of the great unknowns of World War II aviation, the Dewantin D-520. And where we need to start is to look at a man with as much of a complicated history and set of allegiances as the aircraft he designed. Emile de Wantin. Design and Development Is it possible to be accused as a collaborator or traitor to both sides during World War II? Well, yes it is. And that is exactly what happened to the central figure in our story today. Emile de Wontin was born in September 1892 in the small town of crepy en laonnais which is located in the north of France, quite close to the Belgian border. As a young man, de Wontin joined the French military, where he became a pilot in 1911. I'm not sure why de Wontin wasn't sent to fight when the First World War broke out, but instead he was sent to Russia in order to help manage the Enatra d'Odessa et de Simferiopol factories where French-designed voisin biplane bombers were being produced under license. Although it may not have been his choice, this time, it was the first of many times that de Wontin would hop from country to country to pursue his passion of building airplanes. In 1917, after the outbreak of the Russian Revolution, he returned to France and started working for the new French aviation company La Tecorère. After getting some experience there, he started his own company, which had some successes, but closed down in 1927. Dewantin then packed up and headed to Switzerland, where he formed a new company, the Société Aéronautique Française. Avion de Wontin, and had his first real success designing and building a training aircraft for the Swiss Air Force. After securing a solid contract for delivery of 66 of these to the Swiss, de Wontin felt confident enough to move the company back to France in 1931 to start building aircraft for France there. Let's fast forward to 1937 when Duantin was tasked to design a fighter aircraft to replace an earlier one built by his company. The Duantin D-500 was an all-metal monoplane fighter introduced in 1933 that was getting a little long in the tooth for the L'Armée de l'Air, or French Air Force. Things were advancing that fast in the world of aeronautics, at that time, 
and the Duantin D500, which had an open cockpit and fixed undercarriage, was being superseded already. The French Air Ministry published the specifications for the new fighter, calling for a maximum speed of 520 kilometers per hour, that's 320 miles per hour, at 4,000 meters, which is 13,000 feet, and the ability to climb to 8,000 meters, or 26,000 feet, in less than 15 minutes. The aircraft had to be able to operate on airstrips of 1,300 feet or less. The armament was to be two 7.5mm machine guns and one 20mm Hispano-Suiza HS9 cannon, or just two cannon. Note the requested speed of 520 km per hour. It is rumored that the new aircraft's 520 name reflected the need for this speed. Emile de Wontin started with an updated version of the Hispano-Suiza engine used in the D-500. Hispano-Suiza was a Spanish engine producer and their 12Y was a V-12 engine that had less power than its contemporary, the Rolls-Royce Merlin, but this was offset slightly by it being 200 pounds lighter. A version of this engine was built in Russia and would later be developed into the very successful Klimov VK-105 engines that would power the Russian Yakolev and Lavochkin fighters and the PE-2 bomber. The new French fighter was all metal except for fabric-covered ailerons and tail surfaces. The cockpit was installed way back in the fuselage actually behind the trailing edge of the wings. This allowed the pilot great downward visibility, but it made it very difficult to taxi on the ground as the view forward was very obscured. Part of the reason for the long nose was that there was a large 105 US gallon fuel tank placed between the engine and the cockpit. There were two more fuel tanks in the wings, giving a total fuel capacity of 168 gallons, which was a lot, considering that most other contemporary fighters at that time had about 110 gallons. This gave the 502 great range of almost 1,000 miles. The engine was started with compressed air, and an onboard air compressor would continually top up several installed air bottles to power the gun chargers, the brakes, and the propeller's constant speed adjustment. The 520 is the first World War II fighter that I have read about that had a fire suppression system installed in the engine. I know that contemporary multi-engine aircraft had fire extinguisher bottles in the, in the nacelles, but I've never heard of them in fighters. I'm always ready to be proven wrong, though, if someone knows better and wants to let me know. Armament was a 20mm HS-404 cannon with 60 rounds, firing through the propeller hub and four belt-fed M39 7.5mm machine guns in the wings. The wing guns had 675 rounds per gun. Now we're going to focus on the prototype, the production and operational history of the 520. But don't forget about Emile, because we're going to get back to his story later. Prototypes The first prototype D520 flew on the 2nd of October 
1938, and the results were somewhat disappointing. The aircraft was only able to squeeze 480 kilometers per hour out of their aircraft, which is 300 miles per hour. Remember, they were aiming for 520 kilometers per hour. Also, they dangerously overheated the engine to achieve this depressingly low speed. Lateral stability was also a problem. So they went back to the drawing board and swapped in a slightly newer engine and scrapped the previously installed underwing radiators for a single radiator unit housed under the fuselage in a streamlined fairing, similar to what we see on the more familiar P-51 Mustang. Exhaust ejectors were added, which provided additional thrust, and a new three-blade variable pitch propeller was fitted. To fix the stability problem, they made a minor enlargement of the fin and rudder. Due to these changes, the D520 was able to reach its design speed, achieving 530 kilometers per hour, which is 330 miles per hour. Due to the solid performance of the prototypes, France ordered 600 of the new fighter. Poland expressed interest in buying 160. And when the war broke out, France's order was bumped up to 1,280, and the French Navy, called the Aeronautique Navale, also asked for 120. Finally, in April 1940, the French government asked for 2,250, with a production quota of 350 a month. They were basically asking for every plane they could get. Operational History one advantage that the French had at the time was the ability to evaluate a captured BF-109 against a D-520. French pilots took both ships up for simulated combat and came up with the following conclusions. The good news for the French was that in a dive, both planes had similar speeds and similar maneuverability in simulated combat. The bad news was that the 109 had a slightly higher level flight speed and a greatly superior climb speed, where the 520's engine would also tend to overheat. Also, the 520 had a rather violent stall, where the 190's automatic wing slats would pop out to prevent a stall. So what was it like to fly the D-520? Captain Eric Brown, who was the commanding officer of the Royal Aircraft Establishment Captured Enemy Aircraft Flight, test flew it and reported that it was a, open quotes, nasty little brute. Looked beautiful, but didn't fly beautifully. Once you get it on the ground, I was told to leave the controls until it was in the hangar and the engine stopped. You could be taxiing toward the hangar and sit back when suddenly it would go in a right angle. Close quotes. By the time of the outbreak of the Battle of France, only 79 520s had been delivered and only one fighter group, the Groupe de Chasse I-3, was equipped with the plane. On their first encounter with the Luftwaffe, the 520s shot down three Henschel HS-126s and one Henkel HE-111 without losing any of their own. The next day's bag was even better, with four Messerschmitt BF-110s, two BF-109Es, two Dornier D-O-6 
17s and two HE-111s were confirmed to be destroyed at the cost of the loss of two D-520s. Eventually, four more groupes de chasse and three naval escadrilles were equipped with the 520, and it performed relatively well, scoring 104 victories and 39 probables while losing 85 of their own. With the battle going badly, three French pilots took their D-520s to escape, capture, or capitulation and flew to England, where they would become the nucleus of the Normandie Neyman unit before it was sent to the USSR. Once they got to the Eastern Front, these French pilots would fly the Yakolev Yak-1, which was considered to have many similarities with the 520. They do even look alike, and if you haven't heard my episode on this Russian fighter, go ahead and give it a listen after this one. With the collapse of France, things are going to start getting more complicated with our story. And here is where we will rejoin Emile de Wancin. His company was now under the control of the Vichy French government, which was also under German control and had very limited autonomy. Unhappy with this situation, and with a history of packing up and starting elsewhere, Emile moved to the U.S. in 1940, where he tried to start a company to provide fighter aircraft to the U.S. Army Air Corps. He even looked into getting support from Henry Ford and General Hap Arnold. But, on a return visit to France, the Vichy government charged him with treason. Now, it's easy with the benefit of hindsight to be critical of Emile's next decision. But he didn't have foresight. He didn't know that there would be a D-Day and a liberation of France and all that. As far as he was concerned, the war was over, and his country had signed an armistice and was collaborating with the Axis. Emile also had to make the same kind of decisions that thousands of French citizens were now struggling with. It would take a generation to grapple with the after-effects of these decisions. So... Emile made a calculation and decided to stay with his company, which was now tasked with servicing the existing fighters in Vichy and also making 550 more for the Axis war effort. The treason charges against him were conveniently dropped. His Zwanzin aircraft began service with the Vichy regime, with 289 being sent to North Africa, this time to fight against the Allies. The long range of the fighter was advantageous in sending this fighter across the Mediterranean where it tangled with British Hurricanes and Curtis Tomahawks. Many were lost on the ground as the French forces had a shortage of modern anti-aircraft guns and the British took out quite a few with strafing attacks. During Operation Torch, 520s fought against U.S. Navy Grumman F-4F Wildcats from Squadron VF-41 from the carrier USS Ranger and one was shot down. Following Torch, Vichy forces switched sides in the conflict and again began cooperating with the Allies. 153 D-520s were still available and although some flew operationally with the Free French against the Axis, the Allies considered them obsolete. Their radios were unable to communicate with other Allied equipment, 
And so these free French aircraft were gradually replaced with Supermarine Spitfires and Bell P-39 Aerocobras. About 60 D-520s were acquired by the Italian Air Force, or Regia Aeronautica, where they were considered superior to the older radial-engined Machi C-200s for defense against the American B-24s that were frequently raiding the area due to their 20mm cannon. They were used until the end of the war, although there were sometimes difficulties in obtaining the French ammunition. Although there were several variants planned for the D-520, including those powered by Merlin and Allison engines, a floatplane derivative, and other experiments, none of these seemed to be encouraged by the German overlords of the Vichy regime that was in control of the Duancine company. It is interesting to ponder what would have happened to the aircraft if it had been allowed to evolve free of political interference. Would it have been a technological dead end like the Hurricane or Warhawk? Or perhaps it would have been up-edged and added to like the Mustang or Spitfire. We will never know. Pilots if allegiances were complicated for Emile and his machines, it was, of course, just as bad for the pilots. Marcel Albert was born on the 25th of November 1917 and grew up in a working-class environment and started working for Renault as a mechanic. He applied for and was accepted for pilot training in the French Armée de l'Air in May 1938, and was later posted to the Groupe de Chasse 1-3, which was a unit operating D-520s. When hostilities broke out, he was able to shoot down a DO-17 bomber and a Messerschmitt BF-109 on the same day, and later on got a probable credit for a Henkel HE-111 bomber. After the armistice, he flew for the Vichy government, and his squadron was sent to Algeria, where Albert flew a few missions against British forces. You have to wonder about his feelings and state of mind, and his allegiances during the time. Although it didn't take long for he and two other pilots to cross over and defect to the British. He then flew 47 missions in Spitfires with RAF 340 Squadron. Albert's story took a left turn in 1942 when he joined the Free French Normandy fighter unit, which went to the Soviet Union to help fight the Germans on the Eastern Front. This group became operational in spring 1943 and flew Russian Yak fighters. He did very well in the East, shooting down multiple Luftwaffe aircraft, including BF-109s, FW-190s, JU-87s, and others. In September 1943, he was given command of the 1st Esquadrille and finished up the war as France's second highest scoring ace of World War II, with 23 victories. So, let's tally this up. He flew for France, then Vichy, then the RAF, and then the Soviet Air Force. So even though he flew combat missions for Vichy, he was also awarded the Médaille de la Résistance with Rosette from France and the gold star and title of Hero of the Soviet Union from Russia. In 1946, he returned to France and became a test pilot. And while working as an air attaché in Czechoslovakia, he met Frida, 
an American woman working at the American Embassy in Prague. They married, moved to the United States, and lived in Florida and Texas until their deaths, her in 2009 and he in 2010. What an amazing journey. Survivors. D-520s were used as trainers after the war, until they were unserviceable due to wear and tear. The last one flew operationally in 1953. Although no D-520s are airworthy, you can see one at the Musée de l'Air et de l'Espace Air and Space Museum at Le Bourget Airport. I suppose we have to think of Émile Desoincin as a survivor too. As stated previously, he stayed on in Vichy, France, and worked with the German firm Arado to develop the S-10, which itself was derived from the Arado AR-96, which was a Luftwaffe trainer. In 1944, with the liberation of France looming, Emile had to make some decisions again. It must have been very bittersweet for him. His home country was about to be freed, but he would be likely charged for collaboration with the Nazis. Imagine that. He had previously been charged for treason for talking to the Americans. So, Emil did what he could and flew to Spain, where he worked for a time on a derivative of the 520 with Hispano Aviación. Sometime after that, he moved again to Argentina. In 1948, Duantin was convicted in France in absentia as a collaborator and as punishment, all of his property was seized and he was sentenced to 20 years of hard labor. So I guess it was a pretty good idea that he stayed in Argentina, where he designed a couple of jet fighters for the Peron government. Always the mover, he lived for a time raising sheep in Patagonia, then he returned to Switzerland, and finally, after a general amnesty was granted, back to France where he died in Toulouse in 1979. If you get some joy out of listening, please consider supporting the podcast by making a modest donation via PayPal. My PayPal address is at WOWB17. That's at World of Warbird17, or if you want to remember it this way, at WOWB17. You'll have my eternal gratitude.